Hey guys, today I am here with Nick Fuentes, who hosts the YouTube show America First, and he also co-hosts the Nationalist Review with James Alsop, who I've also interviewed a few weeks ago. I'll link that in the description. So thank you so much for joining me, Nick. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So for those who are unaware, can you please give a brief introduction of yourself as well as the different ways that you're involved in politics right now? Sure. So my name is Nicholas J. Fuentes. I'm from Chicago, Illinois. Like I or like you said uh, a little bit ago, I host the Nationalist Review with James Alsup on Spreaker, and I host my own show, America First, Monday through Friday, on my own YouTube channel. Those are probably the the biggest ways I'm involved with politics right now. Me and James are about to launch a co-venture starting probably this week, so you'll see a little bit more content, a little bit more of nice. us uh, later this month. All right, cool. And and what's the co-venture? That, that you and James are going to be doing? Can you talk about that yet, sure. or is it, is it more secretive at the moment? Well, it is a little bit secretive at the moment. We're not so much public yet, but contracts are being signed. We're building nice. a new website. We're building a new, I think we're trying to build a new platform for a little bit. I, I guess the space between Breitbart and maybe Daily Storm, Whoa. we're trying to get right <laughs> in the middle of that. Wow, that's, that's amazing. So are you guys going to try, is it going to be more commentary reporting, or is it going to, are you going to actually try and get some original reporting and reporters like out on the ground and stuff like that? Well, I think it'll be mostly opinion, but you know, not so many details. So now, not just yeah, yet. Yeah. You know, we still haven't launched, but uh, it'll be big. I think a lot of people will really be pleased to see that there there is something in the works with this sort of camp, this movement. So it'll be big. Oh, very cool. So as I mentioned before this interview, I only recently discovered who you are, but I've been watching and really enjoying your America First live streams. And I know you have very good and insightful political commentary. I like it because it seems like you have an original opinion and an original perspective that's coming from you. So I'm curious about your opinion then, how you think Trump is doing so far. What do you think are the good things he's done? Maybe the things you're disappointed in just as a whole. Sure. So, um, well, first, thank you. I'm glad you enjoy the yeah, content. Um, and thank you for the compliment. But I would say that with President Trump, it's it's sort of difficult because, and I was just talking to a, a New York Times reporter was over here the other day, and I was trying to impress upon her just how significant his victory was for people on the right wing, yeah. like just how personally invested we were in that. And so how important he is as a figure for mm -hmm. everybody, whether you're a Republican or alt-right or conservative, you know, whatever you call yourself, that was a big moment. He's our number one guy. And so that mm -hmm. said, I've sort of been walking the line here. I've sort of been straddling the line where on the one hand, we haven't seen a lot of progress on the issues that we want to see progress on. You know, the wall, yeah. we're still only building prototypes. We don't know if it's going to be funded. There's talks about DACA being enshrined in law. Of course, that was a little bit up in the air last week. Um, the healthcare thing didn't happen. Tax reform hasn't happened. And so on the one hand, I understand that. I understand that there hasn't been a lot of progress, but by the same token, I think there is a bigger strategy at play. I think mm -hmm. he's playing the long game for his whole four years and possibly for eight years. So it's sort of this, this duality to it where I'm not totally impressed with it so far. I'm not mm -hmm. totally impressed with the progress, but at the same time, I think there's something more. I think there's more in the works 
than everything we can see right now. So I'm sort of 50-50 on Trump. Right. And I do notice that there are many people who, right out of the gate, he wasn't getting things immediately done that they wanted to see getting them. So they're like, I'm pulling my support. I don't support Trump anymore. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. You know, it was all right. a lie. And I'm like, give him some time. Do you realize what he's <laughs> up against in the White House? Like, hardly anyone supports him. So and you have people like Paul Ryan undermining him at every mm -hmm. turn. So we got to be patient and judge him as a whole. I do I do agree with this. But regarding the wall you mentioned, do you actually think it's a possibility that it will in fact be built? Or is, yes. are, are we in for a disappointment there? Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely think the wall will get built. I think it's just a matter of the political will. And I think, you know, the biggest thing that we have going for us in terms of the wall is that he won't win a second term if the wall isn't built. Yeah, and I so agree. I think- you know, just by that nature, and especially I think the primaries will will give us a good insight into how feasible this will be in the next four years. Because if, for example, like Luther Strange loses in Alabama because, mm -hmm. you know, he wasn't hard on immigration. If major people in the Republican Party start getting primaried in 2018, for example, Jeff Flake in Arizona, or possibly even Mitch McConnell or some of these others in the establishment, I think that'll show us that even the Republican Party writ large will have to have the wall built to maintain their majority. So I think that Trump definitely has the political incentive. It has to happen for him. And I think depending on the outcome of 2018, that that mandate may also be on the Republican Party in Congress as well. Mm -hmm. So your co-host of the National Review, uh, Nationalist Review, James Alsop recently made a very interesting video that I would like your opinion on. And I, you probably know the one I mean. It, it actually has done very well. It's about how feminists are growing very scared of the growing <laughs> sex robot industry, which they are calling toxic masculinity. But I'm curious about your opinion on this. Do you think it's something that it, it is in fact going to be very lucrative and is a big threat, or maybe it'll just uh, be more of a fringe thing? I think it's definitely a big threat. And I think James is very prescient in making a video about that. And, yeah. and I think because you look at what the sex bot represents for the West and for the relationship between men and women, and this is really sort of this this definitive turning point, I think, in the relationships between the sexes, where you see that mm. as feminism has eroded what it means to be a woman down to essentially being a sex object, because they're not wives, they're not mothers, yeah. they're not pleasant, they're not modest, they're just supposed to be men with boobs, they're just supposed right, to be right. men you know, excuse the vulgarity, but they're supposed to be just essentially yeah. men, but with longer hair. And now that you see the advent of the sex robot, where it can probably do more things in terms of sexuality, because it's bionic and, and all of that, without the downside of the nagging feminist who, mm -hmm. who demands things and they want money and they, they have all these needs and everything else, I think this will be a real turning point where women and feminism will become bankrupt and they'll have to return to becoming everything that a woman means outside of just the sexual object that feminism has degraded them into being. Right. And I think that just in in the way that many women have a natural um, desire to nurture, men have a natural desire to protect. And mm. when the women usurp the male role, they take that away. They're emasculating men in a way. So mm. they don't desire these women, but these women don't understand it. They're like, why is this such, it's such a threat, you know, writing their blog posts. But I mean, anyone with enough foresight, could, uh, with any foresight at all can see it coming. So I think it's very interesting, though, to, to see them freaking out. But it's kind of like they're digging their own grave, you know? Mm. So during one of your America First live streams, you mentioned that 
you meet conservative women who advocate for traditionalism and yet they don't actually want to take that role. They want to have careers while, you know, talking about traditionalism, but they, they're not, they're kind of still in a way feminist. They're just not, they're acting like them, but maybe not saying that they are. So do you think, you know, because, because feminism has kind of made men and women opponents, whereas they're supposed to be partners, like opposites that complement one another. So I'm curious, how do you think we could get closer to traditionalism? Do you think women would have to take the first step or is it equal, equal men and women kind of have to collectively come together? I think it is that that collective come together where both sides have to recognize the complementary nature that they play in a union between men and women. And we've definitely lost that where, and you know, you bring up the conservative thoughts, as I like to call <laughs> yeah, them, yeah. where where they demand at once that men be strong and they be muscular and have beards and they have to provide and they have to be smart and everything else. Yeah. And there's really no expectation for women where women can be coarse and vulgar. And if they want to balloon up to 400 pounds, you know, that should be fine. That should right. be just as good as, as someone who's got a nice figure and everything else. I think it is sort of both sides need to walk it back to what is a man? What is a woman? What can they do for each other? And ultimately, you know, maybe the sex robot thing will bring them together. Maybe it'll be the media which brings them together. But certainly with conservative women, I think you don't see enough of that. Where the conservative men are, a lot of them, I think, are there. Maybe not many because you have a lot of these like fat cucks like like Matt Collar and some of the other ones. Um, but certainly the women who preach this traditional role, they say don't they don't like feminism, but yet they're out there unmarried without kids. And some of them are in advanced age, like 30 or 40 or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. And you just have to you have to walk the walk as well mm -hmm. as talk. talk. I, pr I probably can predict your answer to this. But what is your opinion <laughs> of women in politics? Do you think that they can be an asset or do you think would you rather all across the board just leave it to the men? You know, I would generally prefer that it be left to the men. And that is that is mostly because I think that politics is a very ugly, brutal game um, that is unbecoming of a woman. And people think that, you know, me and James, we joke a lot about respecting women and, yeah. you know, uh, patrolling them and everything else. But it really is from a position of respect that we say that women should solely and exclusively partake in the miracle of life, in the miracle of motherhood, which should be a sacred role. And it's been so degraded yeah. and disrespected and mocked in, in modern culture that, that the house mom or the housewife is like this pathetic loser. But I, I think the opposite. I, I mean, yeah. she, the, the house mother has in her, in, in her ancestry, or at least in her archetype, Mother Mary, uh, you know, Mother Nature, people that create in the image of God. So, I mean, it's really a sacred role that we've taken away from them. That said, in this struggle, it is sort of all hands on deck. So people like yourself, right. people like Tara McCarthy, who I was just talking to, and others, you know, so long as there is this recognition of, fundamentally, the ideal is to get away from this, yeah. I think for the time being, if people want to contribute and they want to write, so long as that's not their North Star, their entire being, I don't see anything totally wrong with it. Yeah, and maybe for a lot of women, I think they can particularly be useful in fighting the culture war. I think mm. they can be influential there because, I mean, there, there, there are a lot more men involved in politics just because women aren't as naturally interested and they don't understand all the nuances, everything like that. I, it's something I find. It's very hard to, to meet right-wing women. They are there, but and I think they're steadily getting more interested. But for the most part, it is 
a male dominated field. And I do think it is a good thing because as you said, it's a very heated climate, particularly right now. It's very dehumanizing. It can make you after a while. You just become desensitized to all the cruelty and hatred and it's not a very good thing. Uh, it's something I noticed to myself. So I took, took a step back a few weeks ago. No, months ago, sorry. Uh, because I noticed it happening to me. I did want to talk about your experience at Charlottesville. Uh, personally, I know you and James were both there. Did you receive, what kind of negative backlash, if any, did you receive and how did that affect you just being present there, not necessarily even that you supported every single group that was there? Sure. Well, I mean, obviously the biggest thing was I was uh, released from Right Side Broadcasting Network oh, okay. um, right after that. I had been doing my show with them and, and they called me up and you know, I, I give credit to them in the sense that I've caused many controversies for that network before, and Media Matters came after us, Huffington uh. Post went after us, and, and for other things, and, and they stood by me, basically through thick and thin. Um, and it just got to the point where, after so many controversies, and, and then Charlottesville on top of it, it got to the point where I wanted to go in one direction, and they essentially wanted right. to go in another, where, you know, they were a news channel, and I was doing commentary, so, you know, but that was probably the biggest thing, was getting let go from RSBN. I'm not going to pretend like that was the worst thing in the world, though. I mean, I, I launched my own independent network, and so that actually ended up being, actually, I think, positive. I think it was a, a pretty natural mm -hmm. um, breaking point, but so there was that. I got all kinds of death threats from right. people from my college, from people from even my high school, from people in the community. People reached out and threatened my family, my uncles and aunts, my parents, uh, a lot of my friends from middle and high school, people I had known for years, blocked me on Facebook, blocked me on Instagram, you know, whatever else. So it was a point where I think I, I found out who my real friends were, you know, I think who was really in my corner. And I think it also showed me that this there is only one path here there is no way where you can really i guess do this half-heartedly i was going to say something else but half-heartedly mm, yeah. go about this political revolution where if you're even present there and i know even faith goldie was there covering yeah. and you know that that gave her one strike with ezra levant at the rebel and, and people like myself who were there and repeatedly condemned the worst elements and we were smeared and dragged through the mud in the press as white supremacists nazis and there's just no way about it. You have to give yourself to the fight. So that's, I think, what I learned from that experience. Yeah. Once you come out, it's it's very hard to retain any kind of normal job. Your friends, even if, if they don't agree with you politically, there are some that are tolerant and it's very nice. But for the most part, they're they're just not. So I definitely agree there. Once once you come out publicly under your real face and name, it's kind of got to be your full-time career. And that kind of leads me to my next question. Actually, do you have any future plans to like run for any kind of political office or like what's your ultimate goal uh, political wise? Well, I mean, eventually I'd like to run for office. I think eventually the answer would be government. But for right now, what I've been telling people on my show is we have to really focus on laying down the groundwork right now, building up the institutions and the infrastructure so that in 20 or 30 years we could win elections. And people, I think, on the alt-right and sort of on the fringe right, they have these fantastical ideas that there's going to be secession or, you know, there's going yeah. to be a violent revolution until we can match the might of the U.S. military. We have to win elections. And so right now I'm really focused on through media, through outreach and other things, trying to get people to build this electorate that we're going to need, which is conscious of white identity. But also beyond that, 
is conscious of civic virtue, is conscious of moral virtue. I mean, we have to get people going to church again, people to be sexually virtuous again and everything else. And then maybe in 30 years, there will be room for nationalist, explicitly white identitarian candidates to be put up and really restore our country. But until we get the people great again, I don't think you get the country great again. I absolutely 100% agree with this. If you change people on the inside, all these problems we see manifesting now are going to obviously go away and change. Like, for example, abortion. If people mm. change from within, no one's going to even want it. So, But if you just make it illegal, then the next person who comes along that is in favor of it, that has influence, they're going to just switch it back or people will do it illegally or whatever. So we do. That's a very important thing. So what cultural shifts do you think are the main ones? Do you think that we need to move towards a better society? It all revolves fundamentally, I think, around the family. I think that's the biggest thing. And and basically everything, as I've been on this really an intellectual, like philosophical odyssey, a journey after college and after the election, was basically seeing everything through the lens, through the prism of the family, which is to say that even yesterday, you know, you imagine feminism as sort of like, this is a, an ancillary issue that affects college kids and, and the dating scene and all of that. This is not really relevant to the big questions. But if you think about what dating means, if you think about what feminism means, it means that you won't have families. You won't have yeah. functional families that are bearing fruitful marriages and fruitful households with good, virtuous children. And so, I mean, that's a big part of it is simply getting men and women to come together again and respect each other and to understand each other's separate roles. I think that's a big part of it. I think yeah. religion, nation is a big part of it. When you see the drug epidemic, the, the drug abuse epidemic in the country, the suicide epidemic, this all stems from a lack of meaning in people's lives where they're just sort of hurtling through their lives, going from school to college to full-time job to retirement, and there's no there's no end goal. There's nothing beyond the temporal, yeah. I think, that gives them that gives them satisfaction and fulfillment. So certainly it's this existential component. It's the social uh, between the sexes component. And then, of course, there's the economics, making it conducive so that people can have comfortable lives with yeah. big families. And so once you align all the stars, once you align all of that, I think that will produce a social movement that will, I think you'll, it'll give birth to a great nation again. And so those are probably the three main things that I, I'm focusing on right now. Absolutely. They, they're breaking down all the forms of communities, even, you know, a family unit being a community or the nation being a cohesive. But now you have all these different factions that leave different things. You have communism growing. It's, it's very divided. So my next question for you is regarding feminism, how you said it actually, you know, a lot of people kind of write it off and laugh at it now. It's a dead horse. But we obviously need to rebuild the bridges that feminism has burnt. But you see so many men that aren't even willing anymore. You know, you have factions like MGTOW, communities growing, thousands upon thousands of people. What, in your opinion, is the best way to bring men and women back together? It's sure, a difficult well, you question, know, but... <laughs> well, it's funny you ask that because... You know, if, if the women become strong again, if the women be, or, or rather the opposite, if the women become pleasant and, and modest again mm -hmm. and everything else, the men will come. You know, believe yeah. me, the, the problem is definitely not like men not lusting after women or, or wanting mm -hmm. to, to engage with women. I think it's just a matter of if you get women back to the position of they want someone that provides for them rather right. than they want like this, this ever-increasing sexual stimulation from novel partners— 
I think it'll be a self-solving problem because you have to recognize that these forces we're talking about, whether it's tradition, the sexes, everything else, I mean, this is intuitive to man. This is instinctual to man. It's like gravity. And we just have to give it a little bit of a push. And I think for the most part, it'll, it'll take care of itself. And, you know, that said, it's far easier to destroy something that's been built up than to create it again. Mm-hmm. But these things are so, I think, deeply embedded inside of us that once we get moving in the right trajectory, you'll have this element of momentum where more and more people will see the effects of it, the positivity, and eventually we'll get there. But it's something as simple as, you know, getting off of Tinder, you know, people waiting until yeah. marriage to have sex, getting off of all the, the dating apps and getting rid of all of the rest and, and just starting to see each other as men and women again. And every Everything that that entails. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're aware of who Fulton Sheen is, but mm, he actually, yeah. yeah, he's wonderful. He said something about women that I think is very true, that societies can be defined by the level of their women in the sense that a very good woman makes a man want to be better in order to deserve her. Whereas a woman who has no standards at all doesn't incentivize a man in any way to try and be better. I think there is a lot of truth there. And the, the level of women in our society has just fallen so far. But then again, they've, they've been attacking women for, for decades, trying to get them to this, to this spot. So they're succeeding. But we, it's a good thing that we recognize it now. You know, I think that the fact that we've seen how ugly their side is makes a lot of people retreat back into to more tradition. I think that's why we're seeing this kind of resurgence. I never thought I'd see it. <laughs> that's for sure. I was always made fun of for, for wanting these things, but. I, right. I guess well, we'll yeah, see. Fulton Sheen's great. He, he's yeah. brilliant. And, and nail on the head right there. Absolutely. So I'm curious about your opinion on Antifa. Do you think that that time is is wasted talking about them? Or do you think they are as big of a threat as a lot of people present them as? Uh, you know, Antifa's one of the things that really pushed me very far to the right. You know, when mm-hmm. I was in Boston, and I went the eve of the inauguration. There was a massive protest at night. And you get a totally different crowd at night than you do in the day. Yeah. And there were maybe 100 Antifa, which sounds like an exaggeration, but probably 100 black masks, black hoodies and jeans and flags and everything else. And I saw the violence, the anarchy, the chaos, and I thought, this cannot go on any yeah. longer. Jay, you know, We need someone like J. Edgar Hoover in the FBI or in the CIA to, to crush these people. And, you know, I don't even know if they're like a huge threat more broadly, but it is what they represent, which is that they are the foot soldiers of the establishment. They are the foot soldiers of the neoliberal order that in this normalization of political violence, they will only increase, yeah. I think, the amount of energy, the amount of chaos until there is a point where we can't control it anymore. And so mm. I thought that at Berkeley, they had a really good handle on it with the Ben Shapiro event, where when they impose the no mask rule, Antifa goes away. They're not there. Or if they are, they get arrested. So right. I think that's a good way to combat them. But um, I definitely don't think it's a waste of time talking about them, because it just goes to show the fact that you know, you can talk about free speech, you can talk about how you condemn political violence, and every day of the week, the mainstream media turns a blind eye to it on the left. And so I, mm-hmm. I think they're really a touchstone about this debate in the country. And I really appreciate when pe- when people running for political office, like Paul Nealon, t- discusses Antifa and presents them as an actual problem. They're not afraid to take that by the horns, whereas Paul Ryan or something won't even denounce them. But Hoover, <laughs> right. you mentioned, he was brutal. Have you read Masters of Deceit? I'm sure. No, I have not. Uh, okay, he wrote this book. Maybe maybe you should read it. It, g- it g- gives a good insight into 
his mind. I wanted to actually give you an opportunity to talk about both of your podcasts. Well, the America First Show and then Nationalist Review, what kind of stuff, if you could pitch them, do you like to cover? And what are, what are your objectives with each show? Sure. So America First is Monday through Friday at 7 p.m. Central on my channel on YouTube. And it's about an hour. Usually do 45 minutes of news stories, commentary, personal stories about what's going on in my life. And then we take questions in the last 15 minutes. And the objective of that show was really, I mean, it initially started out mostly as practice for me to to yeah. focus on my delivery and focus on delivering the facts in, in mm -hmm. a, an efficient, entertaining way. Cool. Um, but as it's evolved, as we've entered the third season of it, because we were we were on RSBN uh, in, in the spring, we were on again in the summer, and then I started it. Um, independently, the mission of the show has evolved really to pitch the news from an America first perspective and to take all the news of the day, the current events and step outside of this left right sort right. of a thing, which is so, I think, facile and asinine and enter into a real paradigm that matters, which is how are we going to take what we see in the news and put it into context of what's been going on over the past 50 years, mm -hmm. put it into the context of what is the real problem, who are the real people culpable for what's been going on in the country. And so we take a lot of the news and and we go, I think, really into depth on it in a way that like Crowder and, and Ben Shapiro don't. Yeah. And then Nationalist Review, that's that's every Saturday, me and James Alsup. Um, that's two hours on Spreaker. And that one is really more fun, more loose. You'll hear me yeah. cuss more often on that show. Kind of a boys club. Um, and it's fun for that one just to, I think for me and James Alsup, who are a little bit edgier, more farther to the right, yeah. to give a little bit of a white pill. Where we talk about the issues, but it's fun. And we show people that, that we're just a couple of guys. We're not these mm -hmm. Nazi villains. Right. We're just having fun, having some laughs in, in a pretty um, in a pretty unconventional way. So both good shows um, and, and a lot of fun to do. Great. And you also sometimes have guests on America First, right? Yeah. 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 yeah that includes as well. Okay, cool. So I'll, I'll put links to both of those below. I have a lot of people in my comments sometimes when I interview people who are from Europe or when I go over there and do reporting, they say that either, there's no hope for Europe. It's already defeated. You should just quit now. What's your opinion on this kind of defeatist attitude? Do you think Europe does have a shot? especially with, with growing movements such as Generation Identity that are that are very patriotic? Or do you think that, would you agree with these people who are have defeatist attitudes? I definitely think it's possible for the Europeans. I believe in the will of the European people. And, and to sort of paraphrase uh, Oswald Mosley, who, you know, again, some not so great connotations, but he said, you know, never before have we faced greater glory or greater defeat in terms of this opportunity before us. And I think it's the time to prove the strength and the will and the spirit of the European people in times of tragedy, in times of chaos, in times of disorder. Yeah. And, and you see even maybe 500 years ago where the Ottomans or the Muslim Empire had control of Spain and they were they were going into France and onto the mainland of Italy and up through to Vienna in, in 1529 and then in 1683. I think you definitely have seen this sort of thing before and certainly not of the same nature, whereas before yeah. it was invading armies in different states and now it's it's within and without at the same time, people inside the country and inside the decision-making institutions. It's definitely a more complicated, more difficult situation. That said, I believe in our people. And, I, and that goes to, I think, a lot of what we say about our people, but that when people talk about the issues, I don't know if they believe. I don't know if they believe and have faith in the same way as though they talk about their people. Mm -hmm. Where, you know, Richard Spencer and some of these other characters 
They go out and talk about how we landed on the moon, we did all these great things, we, we created all these great things, but then they, I think they lose faith when they see what we're up against. And I think yeah. that's sort of counterintuitive as to how we speak of our people, where we can accomplish what has never been done. We can recover from something we thought impossible. And I have a lot of faith in my people over in Europe. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it's not like everyone's been defeated and there's no one left standing. So I, right. I don't understand the, the defeatist attitude either. So how, how are you so educated politically? Do you credit that to your uh, education at school or do you do it all on your own? Or maybe your family? Because this is my father. This is why I'm interested in politics, because he talks about it so much. So I kind of grew up with it. But where did yours come from? Because you are very knowledgeable. Sure. Well, I am sort of an autodidact. It wasn't really from my parents or certainly not from school. If anything, school probably <laughs> discouraged me from, from uh, doing okay. the reading that I do. But um, no, it's it's been mostly a journey by myself where I started probably in middle school wow. um, just asking questions. I was always a very curious person in terms of I'd hear a word I didn't understand and I'd want to know. I'd hear about a country I'd never heard of and I'd just be interested in like, you know, wow, what's going on in the world? What are the people like there? What's the system? What is the history? And so it's been sort of this mission of mine where I'm, I'm always collecting books. I'm always reading yeah. things. I'm always watching videos. People ask me all the time, you know, what do you do? What do you do when you're not doing? this and I'm sort of like what do you mean you know exactly. why, why would you want a diversion from this this is the most interesting why would I you know, want to sit and watch the sports game or get drunk I mean to me that's the chore not mm -hmm. not reading about things that have happened and, and great stories and great heroes so it's really been mostly on my own it's been a a, a self-discovery I would say very cool. Yeah, reality is more interesting nowadays. It's hard for me even to watch a movie. I get bored after like five <laughs> minutes, and then you want to yeah. know what's going on. It's just it's so much more interesting. So what who what are your who are your favorite political commentators? Who would you recommend to people that are the most educational and have the best uh, opinions on what's going on? Sure, the best person that I recommend to anybody that you can read is Pat Buchanan, and oh, I say yeah. that because. Oh, I mean, he's, he's the best. You can't top him. You read his, like I was reading Death of the West when I first started reading. Um, and I was in like Boston. I was in Boston in, in the fall of last year. And I usually keep like a notepad of like illusions or things to look up if, if I want to Google them later. Yeah. And I'm in like 10 pages to Pat Buchanan. And I've already filled up the whole page with illusions and book references. Uh -huh. I mean, you could read a Pat Buchanan book and you have like 10 pages of a reading list. I mean, all the different books he's referenced, all the different mm -hmm. anecdotes or stories or poems or anything like that. I mean, there's Pat Buchanan's opinions, which in themselves, I think his historical knowledge, his political knowledge is, is unsurpassed by really any commentator yeah. today. But then on top of that, I mean, all the all the other materials that he references, I mean, it, it's invaluable. And it's yeah. funny to me because you see someone like Ben Shapiro, who he spent his whole career calling Pat Buchanan a racist and an anti-Semite and trying to take him down. And you read Ben Shapiro and it's short snippets. It's, it's very vapid. It's very kind mm -hmm. of empty popcorn sort of stuff. And then you read Pat Buchanan and say what you will about the prejudices, but it, it's deep. It's like, it's like a, a song. It's like a symphony, the way he writes and what mm -hmm. he references. So, I mean, he's probably the top no. one to recommend, but I, yeah, go ahead. Great. No, I was just gonna say, if I remember correctly, he's Catholic as well, right? Pat yes. Buchanan. Yeah. 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 I, thought, Catholic, I thought he yeah. was. Yeah. So yeah. Well, you know, what, what can we say? Catholics are the best. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, right. Uh, so for my last question, I, I like to ask a lot of people this, but opinions vary on it. Do you think that the end of the 
mainstream media reign is is coming to a close? Do you think they have just as much influence or do you think that alternative medias are really giving them a run for their money, such as Breitbart and there a lot of people are losing faith in their power structure? Sure. Well, I, I think you'll always have the mainstream media. People have, again, they have these fantasies of like New York's time takes takes down their big sign and yeah. they close their offices. You know, I don't know if that'll ever happen. Just given the sheer amount of resources that are at their disposal, I think people really underestimate that these are billion dollar yeah. industries in terms of the equipment, the infrastructure, the the payroll and everything else. So, I mean, we'll see that for quite some time. That said, you look at Fox News as a case study where they've had to let go almost all of their talent from Megyn Kelly to Bill O'Reilly mm. to um, to even like Stossel and Greta Van Susteren. And, and who was the last one to just leave? Eric Bowling mm. and Bob Beckel and, and so many of them have just had to go. And I think it illustrates the strength of the alternative media, which is that we don't have to play by the same rules. We don't have the same business structure that they do, where if someone says something a little bit that's not PC, right. advertisers are out, they lose all their revenue. So I definitely think that the alternative media, you're seeing their strengths being played to by the current political climate, where people are looking for something that's more authentic, more genuine, more by the people, for the people, populist, grassroots stuff. And so I think that's definitely coming at the expense of the mainstream. But you'll always have both. I just think that the alternative is now rising up. And I think it'll, it'll really be ascendant in the next five years. Mm -hmm. Maybe I wasn't really aware of it before, but I feel like they lost most of their credibility before, uh, during the election. And they had incredible power. Uh, like a lot of people didn't question them as, as they do now. But through the election... Trump played them like a fiddle. It was amazing to watch. So, but, but I do agree that they still have a lot of power and they can make everyone, people like you and James Alsop, and they've done it to me as well. Like after Charlottesville, for example, you have no control over what they mm -hmm. say about you and they can even lie. Like, for example, right. you say, they'll say, you're all right. You'll be like, well, I'm actually not all right. And they'll be like, but we see you as all right. And it's like... <laughs> Uh, you, you can't really yeah so I, I don't even worry about it I, I just ignore it but they do have a lot for for anyone who's not really aware of the political what's really going on in politics they'll just believe it so right. but I but I guess it doesn't really matter so uh, I've come to the end of my questions but it's been wonderful having you Nick I really appreciate your time where's the best place for people to find you online Sure. So people can find me. Probably the best place would be Twitter at okay. Nick J. Fuentes. And then, of course, my YouTube is Nicholas J. Fuentes. Awesome. Cool. I will link those below. Thank you so much to everyone for watching. I really hope you enjoyed. And thank you once again, Nick. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast.